we stand in the presence of God's Word. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription against him read, The King of the Jews. With him they crucified two bandits, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him also taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, Listen, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two, top to bottom. Now when the centurion who stood facing him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was God's son. This is the word of the Lord. Three times... In this 15th chapter, Mark says, they crucified him. They crucified him. The love of God was offered up in flesh and blood. They crucified him. Dr. Femi Perkins in her commentary on this passage said, Note that five days before, all of those closest around him were waving palm branches, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now everyone is taunting him, taunting him. We know stories of people who've been put to death, those who've been beheaded, who worried more than anything else that they could die well, that people would not make fun. That even notorious folks who were being hanged were so concerned that they not soil or wet themselves at the moment of death and be humiliated. But the passers-by wagged their heads and screamed at him. Members of the Sanhedrin wagged their heads and screamed at him. Even those on right and left crucified beside him taunted him. Mark says, I've underlined four things. First of all, that part about noontime, when the whole land became dark. Right at noon, the whole land became dark. I read six good commentaries this week, the best that I have, and all of them say that Mark and the other gospel writers knowing what happened that day at noon, remembered the work of Amos the prophet. So this week I opened my Bible to Amos and I read again. Amos was a shepherd 
The Bible says he was also a dresser of sycamore trees. Now, sycamores in the Middle East are not the same as those we have in Oklahoma. They have fruit that grow on the tree there, similar to figs. And when these trees are appropriately pruned, they bear even more fruit and better and sweeter fruit. So somehow he was a pruner of trees and a shepherd. He lived at Tekoa, we're told, a little almost nowhere place outside Jerusalem in the southern kingdom called Judah and dared go marching into the northern kingdom called Israel where Jeroboam II was king and shout out to as many as would hear him, you sell the poor for a bag of silver. You sell the fatherless for a pair of sandals. God has told me he's hanging a plumb line below, beside Israel to see what is perpendicular, to see what is straight up and straight down. And guess what? You are not straight with God. You are not straight with each other. I say to you, let justice roll down like thunder and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And on the day of the Lord, at noonday, the sun will go black. He was speaking of judgment. We don't know exactly what time during that reign of Jeroboam II Amos prophesied such. We know that Jeroboam II ruled for 40 years from 786 to 746 before the common era. Four decades of lawlessness, of worship of pagan, heathen gods and goddesses, and finally the judgment came. The dreaded Assyrian Empire, growing bigger and bigger to their north, swept southward and burned and raped and, and, and took everything of value, took away wives and daughters. It was horrible. They so intermarried, so inter lived with these people that the ten northern tribes ceased to exist as a separate people. On the day of the Lord, in the middle of the day, the sun will go dark. It's a day of judgment, in Amos' words, a day of judgment. And it came. So this is a day of judgment, Mark believes, a day of judgment upon sin. But God has offered up himself in flesh and blood and the world, and we, a part of it, crucified him. We crucified him. Number two, Jesus cried out into that darkness. During that three hours between noon and 3 p.m., he cried out. I never really understood how that could be reenacted until I was in seminary. When I was a part of the seminary singers at Perkins School of Theology, Southern Methodist University, our director was Dr. Lloyd Fouch. Dr. Fouch was dealing with all male student body at the time. We had a couple of females, but mostly males. And so the seminary singers were first, second tenors, baritones and basses, four-point male voices. And Dr. Fouch arranged various things for us. And one of the things that he arranged was a setting of the seven last words. And we took that out on tour that spring and, and sang it in church after church uh, across this part of the United States. And every time we got to this word from the cross, the only one that Mark gives us, Dr. Fouch had picked the very best tenor soloist we had to cry out into that sanctuary. Hey, Lee. Hey. 
did it, every performance, because it just makes your blood boil. It makes you cringe when you hear these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And scholars are quick to point out that this is the second verse of Psalm 22. When the righteous have felt in the darkest moments of their life that God was somewhere else, not attentive, not present. Gail and I have now been to eight of the Holocaust sites. We've spent a half day to a whole day in eight different camps. In Poland, we went to Majdanek, we went to Auschwitz, we went to Birkenau. In Germany, we've been to Sachsenhausen, we went to Ravensbrück, we went to Dachau, we went to Flossenburg, we went to Buchenwald. We stood at the very spot where Dietrich Bonhoeffer was stripped naked one cold April morning, marched out and hanged just days before the Allied forces got there to liberate the camp. <clears throat> we were in Buchenwald. Wald in German means woods or forest. <clears throat> so the Buchen forest, if you would. Elie Wiesel and his father were force-marched all the way from Auschwitz to Buchenwald. Auschwitz is in Poland. Buchenwald is in Germany. Force-marched because the Russians were coming from the east. They were about to find out what the Germans had been doing, the Nazis had been doing to all these Jews. And so they were being force-marched to try to stay ahead of the Russian armies. Elie Wiesel's father died on the way. Young Elie was only 15 years old. He made it all the way to Buchenwald. And in one of his books he says, If only the trees could talk. If only the trees could talk. He talks about Passover coming when some wanted to gather what little bits of bread they could to have Passover. And others were saying, There is no God. He is not here. But when Elie was finally rescued, and the big clock at Buchenwald still marks the moment of liberation. The clock has not been changed since 1945. 15-year-old boy was put on a train and sent to France. When he arrived there with all these others who had been rescued and liberated, he was told there was a warm shower waiting. They had been told about showers where natural gas comes out instead of water they were shown it would be warm water this time and they showered and were fed and shown to their rooms Ailey was asked by one very nice Frenchman is there anything else I can do before you sleep tonight and Ailey said do you have Talmud at the moment his whole family had been arrested his father had been reading the rabbinic commentaries on the Hebrew scriptures and Ailey wanted to begin right where his father had left off three years before. At the base of a wall in one of those camps, one who did not survive wrote, I believe in the sun even when it does not shine. I believe in love even when I feel it not. I believe in God even when he does not speak. Number three, when he died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, top to bottom. 
that special place, the Sanctum Sanctorum, the Holy of Holies, where only once a year the high priest went in, after offering sacrifice for the sins of himself and his own family, he offered sacrifice for the sins of the people and then went in and prayed to Israel's God, would you move from the seat of judgment to the seat of mercy? The seat of judgment to the seat of mercy. Mark says when Jesus died, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, meaning you don't have to wait for the high priest to come out and say, you've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. He's moved from the seat of judgment to the seat of mercy. Will you receive his grace? Will you open the door? Will you let him come in? Gail and I have seen some of the really great artworks of the world. We've been so blessed by that. In Rome, there's a beautiful church called Santa Maria del Popolo. And there are two paintings in that church in Rome done by Michelangelo Marisi, who came to be known in history now by his hometown, Caravaggio. By the time Caravaggio was 29, the Pope already knew about him, Pope Clement VII, and wanted him to do these two beautiful paintings in the church of Santa Maria del Popolo in Rome. And they've been there now 410 years. The better one, at least the one that seems to attract more people, is the one of the conversion of Saul. No one has ever painted the conversion of Saul exactly like Caravaggio did. When you walk up to this beautiful painting, you see that all around is dark, and right in the center is light. And you know what the biggest figure in it is? A horse. A beautiful horse. A Roman horse. A Western European horse. One of those big draft horses. It's beautiful. Light shining on its flanks, its huge uh, rear quarter, all the way up you can see its head with the bridle. Saul has been thrown from his mount. His feet sticking under the legs of this huge horse still standing over him. Saul is not looking at you and me. His face is turned in the opposite direction. You can see some of the features, but not full face. You see an older gentleman holding the bridle of the horse, some kind of groomsman. But what you see more than anything else is light, right in the center of the painting. Light. Light reflected off the flanks of that horse. Light reflected off the bald head of the groomsman. Light reflected off the bare chest of Saul. And Saul is lying flat of his back with his arms outstretched, embracing the light that for a time has blinded him, but a light that says, Why are you persecuting me? Come home, Saul. Come home. Come home. Can you see grace? Can you see love? The curtain has been torn for you to see. Number four. Mark is writing... A good 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. By this time, the Christian movement is a Gentile movement. The Jews have gone back to the synagogues. 
Mark is writing to us Gentiles. He has begun his gospel not with shepherds and wise men and a baby in a manger. Mark began with Jesus, a grown man, who's gone south from his hometown at Nazareth down to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. And he's told you right there in the first few verses that as Jesus walked out of the river, a voice spoke to him. You are my beloved son. I'm pleased with you. Mark gets to the middle of his gospel and here is the dividing point when finally he asks the disciples who people think he is. And Simon says, you are the Messiah of God. Bless you, Simon. Flesh and blood is not revealed as to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And later Jesus is transfigured up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. His robe so dazzlingly white, they can hardly hold their eyes open. There he is with Moses and Elijah, and the voice speaking this time to the three of them. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And now, Jesus has died. Many who were crucified would hang on the crosses 24, 48, even 72 hours before they died. The Gospels say six hours. Six hours he died. And the centurion, meaning he was over a hundred, his name comes from a hundred, this commander of a hundred had stood there and watched. It says this centurion facing him and seeing him die and hearing the cry said, truly, this was God's son. It's a Gentile. It's a Gentile who makes the first great confession after the death of Jesus. Barbara Gowecki is a minister who felt that God was calling her to minister to people who've been pronounced terminally ill and handed over to hospice. She works through the hospice program. She had CPE, which is known to seminarians as clinical pastoral uh, education. means you're in the hospital, you're dealing with critically ill people, often terminally ill people. And one of the things you're taught in CPE is to be sure this person and those who love him or her is not in denial about this whole thing, that they're facing up to what's happening. So she said, there was at one morning, I walked into Susan's room. I said, good morning, Susan, how are you? And she said, God will not disappoint. And I wasn't sure she was in denial or not, so I said, But what if you don't get well? What if you die? And Susan said, Then certainly God will not disappoint. 